Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. There's also links to our forums, our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read. Dear Diary, my name is Laura Palmer. And of just three short minutes ago, I officially turned 12 years old. It is July 22nd, 1984, and I have had such a good day. You were the last gift I opened, and I could hardly wait to come upstairs and start to tell you all about myself and my family. You shall be the one I confide in the most. I promise to tell you everything that happens everything I feel, everything I desire, and every single thing I think. There are some things I can't tell anyone. I promise to tell these things to you. Diane, it's Monday, March 13th, 2017. And now Peking is finally getting around to reading and reviewing Laura Palmer's Secret Diary. This is Books and Nachos. I'm Stuart. And this is Arnie from the Black Lodge, and we're both back. We both kind of had some long absences from Books and Nachos. <laughs> I thought Stuart got lost in the dunes. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I've been here recently. But uh, yeah, we've definitely been strangers to Books and Nachos, but not to Twin Peaks. And we have reached maybe one of my favorite parts of Twin Peaks lore, and it's a book. I remember this coming out. I can't say this is one of my favorite parts of the lore, but it certainly was something I was obsessing over the summer of 1990. I mean, you'd introduced me to Twin Peaks as we've discussed over on Now Peaking, and I wanted to know who killed Laura Palmer. And so they teased there would be this book written by David Lynch's daughter, and it would have all these clues. We were told in advance in season two, they would find the secret diary of Laura Palmer and secrets would be revealed. But hey, for what, 1998, you could get it first? Yeah, I think uh, it came out September 15th. So about two weeks before the season two premiere and several episodes before the revelation of the killer. I was with you, Arnie. I wanted to know. And I poured over this obsessively. I, I did not want to read this again until after we've covered the what I refer to as the episode arc of Who Killed Laura Palmer. That has been revealed over at Now Peaking, and I felt like knowing that was out there, I could now return to this, because to me, this was the biggest spoiler they could ever produce. I had no idea before I opened the cover exactly who killed Laura Palmer, although I had some theories, and I was certain of who it was after I read this book, and I wasn't wrong. Now, I reread this back because I wanted to relive the Twin Peaks experience. I wanted to read this book before season two started as I had back in 1990. So I've watched season two with this full knowledge. And 
When I read this in 1990, I closed the book as confused as to who the killer might be as I was when I opened it. And rereading it this time, I can see some certain things that I think point towards the killer. I don't think it's as overt as you seem to think it is. But just to warn people who aren't keeping up with us at Now Peaking, this is going to spoil Twin Peaks. We are going to say who killed Laura Palmer. So if you don't want to know, we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, this, this book to Nachos will always be here. And I suppose you could just read the book and not watch the series. I don't know what that would be like for you, but I mean, it is a standalone effort. What's so great about it is it's both a memento. It feels like a prop from the set of the show. It was made to look like the cover of her journal. And it feels like, wow, I'm holding this secret thing. But it's also, it's got a Judy Bloom quality. If you recall the young adult author of our generation, you know, she wrote about adult things for a young audience. And I always remember reading her books to learn a lot about anatomy and sex <laughs> and what we were all going to turn into. And I definitely feel like, wow, this is Part of it is we, it should be pointed out when this show was originally on, when we were experiencing it, we were only a year or two younger than Laura Palmer. So reading it felt very much like, wow, I thought this is what sex in adulthood was going to be. You don't have it like that? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm happy to say I have not lived the life of Laura Palmer. And uh, she's been loved by many. I, the log lady will say that to her. But I guess I just uh, have been missing out. But no, I have not found I ended up applying much of the lessons learned here. But there's a prurient quality. I wanted to say there's just something about reading about someone's sexual awakening that I think works in the way of just titillation and so maybe you don't have to be a twin peaks fan to read this book i'll say this my parents really didn't care what i did unless it somehow would reflect negatively on them socially or it would down my grades but they didn't care what i read they didn't care what i watched they didn't care a lot about my life this book was the one time in my entire life my mother said, you're reading this thing I wouldn't approve of. Wow, really? Yes. <laughs> I remember a faux scandal. I have heard people repeat when I'm reading things about Twin Peaks that there were bookstores that wouldn't stock it because it was so controversial. But I don't remember it that way. I mean, I remember seeing it in a big display case at Walden Books and snapping a copy right up and not needing an adult to purchase it in my name. I It didn't come in a brown paper sack. Exactly. I mean, I was 15 years old when this book came out. I had had my share of naughty magazines. My mother didn't <laughs> care about those. And those did come in brown paper sacks and were illegal for me to own at that age. But this book, yeah. this book bothered her mainly because I think it represented Twin Peaks and my obsession with it, but also because of the content. And I will say you talk about titillation. When I read this book at the age of 15, I was about Laura Palmer's age. I mean, a couple years younger than when she died. She died at 18. But you look at when she starts writing this, and this started getting written on her 12th birthday. We'll discuss the years a little bit. but mm, Yeah. <laughs> and so the entire time of this book, her age is around my own. When I'm reading it at that age, 
I found this book to be hotter than any of those magazines that I had under my bed. Reading it as an adult, I find this book to be so disturbing in the child molestation areas it gets into and just the sheer wrongness of what occurs to an underage girl. But when you're underage yourself, you look at it different. Absolutely. Like I said, there was just a quality. I was a fan of the show. I would have read anything. And quite honestly, the book was different than what I imagined it to be. I imagined it to be full of cameos and clues about all the townspeople. And it is that. But ultimately, I think what's so impressive about it to me is that Jennifer Lynch was just given free reign to really explore feelings. And that most of this book, I feel like Laura is talking about dreams, interpreting her dreams, and really trying to articulate what she was going through. And that's one thing the show does not do. I think what's really important to stress is the show just takes Laura as a foregone conclusion. She's a corpse at the beginning, and so she's just the MacGuffin that gets all of these other mysteries out there. And she's a plot device, basically. In this book, she is a person. She is a person in pain. And that can be surprising. It can remind you that this fun, quirky show that you love to delve into is dealing with subject matter that is pretty sordid and really painful to face. And I think that the show handled a lot of that up front with its living characters. You know, there's quite a bit of that going on. But yes, this is the first time that I think we really got to see inside Laura's life beyond a quick videotape. Now, a lot of this is going to cross grounds with Firewalk With Me. Yeah, I don't know that we would have had Firewalk With Me had this book not been written and been successful, and I believe probably changed David Lynch's idea about Laura Palmer. I think that he thought of her one way, and after this book came out, thought of her differently. Really? Have you heard anything from him that said that? No, no, no. This is me. And the way that I look at the way he treated Laura before and the way that he decided to make the, the movie sequel tells me that he wanted to look at Laura Palmer as a person in the movie. I'm just going to point our listeners to another podcast. If you listen to the Nerd Noir podcast at nerdnoir.com, back in 2015, they interviewed Jennifer Lynch about this book, and there were some interesting details about this book that came out, the making of. But one thing that Jennifer Lynch said is she doubts her father ever read this book. Mm. She talks on the bonus features of the Twin Peaks box sets that Mark Frost and David Lynch took her into a room and acted like they were going to tell her who killed Kennedy, when in fact what they were telling her is who killed Laura Palmer. She was supposedly the third person on the planet to know this and then told to go write this book and she didn't have very long or what a couple months she wrote it in nine days oh my gosh and that's about all the time she had and then she flew to new york with it to take to the publisher and when she got there the floppy disks if you remember those mm. were erased my personal guess is she put them through an x-ray machine mm -hmm. and so when she got there every copy of the book was gone Wow. Well, I guess she could take another nine days. She probably could spare another week and rewrite it. Three days. 
<laughs> so what you're reading was written first page to last on a manual typewriter in three days in what I imagine to be a caffeine and cigarette fueled frenzy. I don't know if she even smokes, but that's my imagining. Wow, that's that is amazing. I'm even more impressed because I want to just put it out there. Not a fan of Jennifer Lynch as as far as her work as a director. I've seen two of her films that she both wrote and directed, and I see similarities. I know that she was a published poet and that there's poems throughout this diary because, you know, that was her forte at the time. Supposedly, that's why she got the gig. She didn't get the gig because she's the director's daughter. Uh Uh-huh, that that didn't hurt, I'll put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it was that she had been uh, successful at a very early age in getting poems published. I think they might have been published because of who her father was, I don't know, but I suspect that they, at the very least, her literary merits had been vetted and she was close to making Boxing Helena when she was given in this task. So she already had written the screenplay, was going to produce this movie. Boxing Helena is interesting because it's almost the inverse of Secret Diary. It's, you know, Laura Palmer is someone that looks perfect on the outside, but inside she's hurting and seething and imperfect. While Boxing Helena is about someone that everyone thinks is a bitch, except this one sad sack doctor who wants to turn her into art. And after she gets run over and loses two of her limbs, actually remakes her as the Venus de Milo. And it's magical realism. It's a lot of flowery poetry. I think a lot of the problem with it is the acting and and Lynch's inexperience as a director. When you hire the warlock as your lead, you know what you get. (laughs) He's not always bad, but uh, it was a highly unsuccessful film whose aspirations felt like a David Lynch wannabe. And so I'm not necessarily prone to want to uh, embrace what she's doing here. Because she's the daughter of David Lynch, we should not ascribe our feelings about David Lynch onto her work. That movie, Surveillance, she made many years later, is just nearly unwatchable. I have not seen that. I did drag three friends kicking and screaming to Boxing Helena. And then when we left, they were kicking me and screaming at me for taking them. But (laughs) I never saw the later one. One thing, though, that when... I was reading this, I had the real thought was, we're reading about a girl going through the process of maturity, and how much of this reflects Jennifer Lynch's own life? And that's something that would actually be thrown at Jennifer Lynch by the actor who played the little man from another place. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he, he did make some horrible accusations, I think, in anger. The fact that he's not in the third season and that came out afterwards... He was friends with David Lynch at one point, and then, yes, began to allege that this secret diary was actually autobiographical, that Jennifer Lynch was Laura Palmer, and that David Lynch is, okay, we should go ahead and spoil it, Leland Palmer, the murderer of Laura Palmer. Well, long before Michael Anderson, that actor, put that out there, Jennifer Lynch did a very brief interview on the Blu-ray, and she said there's only... Two things in this book that are autobiographical. Two things from her own life. The first is a dream sequence that I don't even know if it's worth bringing up outside of the fact that it's a dream Jennifer Lynch really had about a rat trying to eat her. Mm -hmm. The second thing? Well, she won't tell us what that is. Okay. So it's probably one of the more X-rated things is my own personal guess. Okay. There's a lot here. I mean, I feel like almost anything that happened to her in her last two years would be pretty scandalous to own up to as your own story. 
There's a certain passage that just has a verisimilitude that I would point out, but I'm not even going to say what it is. But okay, it is. You can tell me off the air. It just feels like there's something there, but but I don't know. It's just conjecture. Mm-hmm. But as for this book, this is really, I can't imagine a diary kept in such scattershot fashion. It's going to start on July 22nd, 1984. And that brings the question of when did Twin Peaks take place? Mm-hmm. This is the most hurtful part about all of this is that I cannot incorporate what we learn in the story with the timeline of the show. Because the show, in most instances... When Dale Cooper is talking into his mini cassette and reciting the date, he is saying 1989. But this diary is going to go all the way through 1990. Or I think that they got it off by a year. And I, we talked about that on Now Peaking. I think you're right. Arnie came up with the theory that, well, the pilot was shot in February 1989. So that's why Kyle McLaughlin is saying that in the first episode. But by the time they were shooting the rest of the first season, uh, it was November, December. They knew the show wasn't going to come out in 1989. So they wanted to make it a 1990 date so that it would feel contemporary when it was on the air. And thus we do have a very mixed-up timeline of maybe it's 1989, maybe it's 1990. I believe most of the data confirms that everything happened from February 24th, 1989 through, yeah, the end of March. They did reprint this book. I remember being all excited. This was before there was a third season of Twin Peaks on the horizon. It was about five years ago now. But they put this book back in print, and they had a new foreword from Mark Frost and David Lynch, and they could have changed the dates then. They did not. I was hoping that they would. I did not even know until I was reading it yesterday and realized suddenly we were blowing past February 1989 that they had not. I would have figured that would have been a mistake they would have easily corrected and no one would have noticed. But you're right. They just decided to reprint it as is, and yeah. I wish I had my original copy of it, by the way. I, I used to mark it up in the margins. I actually, I had the soundtrack too, and I would write in the margins what music track to play for each diary entry. And, you know, there there are, are moments where it changes, where she seems to be happy about something, and then I would draw a big arrow at the line where she would say something ominous, like, I hope Bob doesn't come tonight, and then, like, we'll change it to track two, you know? Like, I was very, very into... <laughs> rereading this as a part of the show with with that soundtrack in my ear when i read this i definitely had that soundtrack playing on a loop i can't say that i really synced it up so much as you remember on cd players how you could actually program in you know play these tracks in this order and you had to go through this whole big process like setting up a vcr to tape mm. i'd make it so it would skip the lyric tracks of julie cruz because that would be too distracting to but all the angelo battlementi instrumentals would be playing while I read this. And this does bring me to one huge question mark. And as I was preparing for this review, it bugged me. I even tweeted to Mark Frost and to Jennifer Lynch, why isn't there a freaking audiobook of this read by Cheryl Lee? I mean, that just seems like it would be obvious. And the answer is, we're recording this a little too early. Uh, it was announced, <laughs> it was announced just a couple weeks ago that it is 
finally coming out. It didn't come out with the original release. It didn't come out with the re-release. But now with Showtime doing mm, this, yeah, in May, you will be able to hear this entire book unabridged read by Cheryl Lee. I mean, audiobooks, thanks to Audible and everything, are huge business these days more than ever. I remember growing up and audiobooks were initially for the hard of seeing and then they were for the lazy. And now... Unabridged audiobooks are absolutely everywhere, and with the Twin Peaks revival... Yeah, I feel like there is a big marketing push that we may be getting a lot of surprises. All the things that I wish that the show had put out back in the 90s, we may actually be getting in the next couple months. Well, good on them. I actually would be curious to know how she'll do with it. Uh, Obviously, she's a different age uh, than the character at the time that she recorded the show, but... Maybe that will only help her get into character. I'm most interested in when she is going to be reading the Bob portions. Mm-hmm. I agree. Now, are you going to buy it? I assume that, you know, if if that's the case, if it's coming out in May, we can talk about it in one of our future Books and Nachos reviews. Yes, I will be buying it. I will be listening to the whole thing to see how that experience compares. I'm sure I'm going to be in the middle of Twin Peaks hype. And yes, on a future Books and Nachos, or if nothing else, on the season three premiere discussion of Now Peaking, I'll let you know. Great. But yeah, I was taking my notes and I was completely one year off. I always thought she was a year younger than she was when I was doing my math, even though it does say it starts on her 12th birthday in 1984. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she died at 17, but I think that she was close. to Her birthday, we find out, is July 22nd. So she was in her birthday year. She would have turned 18. She was a senior I take it in high school, would have gone on to college and all of that. So to begin here, I think of it more in terms of American grade schools. She was in seventh grade. That just blows my mind. When I put it in that context, forget the year or even 12, because that's a nebulous age. But seventh grade, I remember very distinctly what my concerns were at that time. And she, within the first month of writing in this diary, is going to talk about having orgasms in her dreams and learning to masturbate and learning that there is somebody, some scary long-haired man that wants to take her in the woods and do horrible things to her. I would say that's, you know, probably around the right age for that stuff i mean well except for the last yes except for the last part i mean i guess you're right 12 i mean these days i hear kids are developing even faster some yeah drugs in the water but i hear hormones in the milk but whatever (laughs) maybe i was a late bloomer maybe i just you know have romanticized what being 12 is but i feel like she's awfully young to be exploring in the voice that she does some of the things that she's talking about. I, I'm just remembering things I told you on the playground in sixth grade, Stuart. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, I realized that maybe, I mean, but it was a weird mix. I just, without revealing those secrets, that's the secret diary of Arnie Carvalho. And that would have much more childhood things. Yes. What we're going to find in this diary is it's very specific about her violations. There's not a lot of talk about what she ate for dinner. There's not a lot of talk for, you know, watching Invitation to Love and TV and all the things that I would have written about. You know, it would have been important to me to write down absurdity, things that I had bought, an action figure or, you know, my grades in a test. 
all of that kind of stuff has been excised. They realize they're writing this for an adult audience that wants to know about the mystery of why she ended up dead. And so I feel like Jennifer Lynch, who was very young at the time she wrote this, 22, still she's not that far off from Laura's age. She keeps the prose at a place where almost every entry has some kind of revelation. I think it starts that way. I mean, her very first entry, it's my birthday, Donna's my best friend, my daddy gave me a horse. That's what you would expect from a diary of someone that age. But you're right. It does very quickly become far more, basically, the highlights. You know, they go through this act of saying pages are ripped out because they're going to do that in the show. And the pages that were really ripped out are the pages where Laura Palmer had a normal day because months will pass. There's a, about a third of the way through the book where almost every passage begins, diary, I can't believe I haven't written in you for so long. <laughs> she has good reason for stopping initially. She's diligently putting in passages almost every day for the first two months. And then she discovers that someone has been reading this. And that kind of violation begins the whole series of violations in Laura's life, that she wants to have something private. She sees the journal as a way of sharing and self-reflecting for herself. And the fact that someone is going to come in and, and rob her of that is the story of her life, really. Yeah, but from like the very second entry, which is still on her 12th birthday, it ends with, P.S. I hope Bob doesn't come tonight. And knowing what we know about Bob, again, that is her father, and that he doesn't come tonight, this means by the age of 12, she was already being molested in the night. Should be clarified, Bob is a vision of a scary man, that if she was being attacked and writing about it, you would think that she would be able to identify her attacker in the pages. She has made her attacker Bob. Now, is that a psychological device? Is she repressing who is abusing her and creating a phantom? Or, as the TV show would later explore in more detail, are there actually ghosts and supernatural forces at work in the woods that fly in and possess people? And, yeah, it actually... It is a different person, but Bob is some kind of spirit, some devil figure, the, you know, Pazuzu, if you will, that will come and possess family member and through him attack her. Right. I'm just going with, you know, in the body of her father, and we will get into what that means very deeply on now peaking. But at the age of 11 or younger, she was being visited in the night, and I doubt if he was just coming for a chat. You know, I don't know, because she, within the first month, is having her period. To me, that means she is of age where she could have a baby. And yet, if she were sexually violated without protection for as many years as she is, I would think that she would wind up pregnant a lot sooner. She does actually end up having an unwanted pregnancy, comes really late into her life, but I wonder how much of these early attacks are just psychological. I wonder, but there is a passage, again, still when she's 12, about her having a dream that they sent someone after her to touch her in bad, mean ways. So I'm reading this as early molestation. Molestation started, you know, the child molestation is not 
about breeding and it you know it, it all that i'm saying is that she maybe have been touched i don't know that she was penetrated to be as graphic as possible about it yeah true. that's what i'm saying yes and to me i guess it almost doesn't even matter what that kind of sure, assault of is it's assault no matter that's going to have a psychological and physical effect yeah and some of these early they're heartbreaking i mean I know I'm going to die this way. You know, she's talking about this heat being produced between her thighs. How will anyone ever understand that I tried to keep my legs closed? That for her, the battle to remain pure and virginal really is, you know, she will end up having a list of people she has sex with. And Bob is her first. This is the man who took her virginity. Yeah, no matter when it was. And it's kind of an odd balance. And I got to give Jennifer Lynch some credit for doing this, where on the one hand, it is truly horrific that a girl this young is being violated. On the other hand, and I guess from my limited knowledge, there's some truth to this. When you're molested at a young age, it can lead to hypersexuality later in life and so when she learns to masturbate at a young age and things this is a very salacious diary that discusses a lot of her sexual acts and so to have horrific molestation balanced with like you said titillating tales of burgeoning sexuality as kind of like an emmanuel movie it is really weird to read as an adult and try to figure out tonally is this exactly what Jennifer Lynch was going for in the sense of being completely confused? Or is it that this was written in three days and she just, it's uneven in tone? You know, I see the fact that she has this friend Donna as really the reference point to where she should be at developmentally and where she's at. I mean, Donna is supposedly her best friend, and yet they are going to grow very far apart because she can't confide in Donna the things that are going on with her. And she actually, I think, says the man that she loves and trusts most is Donna's dad. It's Doc Hayward. The man that delivered her is the one that she's most concerned about pleasing, oddly enough. She ends up being disappointed with her father and her father's boss, Ben Horn. We'll talk a little bit about that relationship in a bit. But yeah, I get the sense that she measures herself against Donna and constantly feels that either Donna is too naive or she's just too far gone. This happens with any prequel. It happened with the Star Wars movies. It happens here. When you see something that is telling of things past and then you see it, it never lines up quite right because, yeah, Donna is supposed to be Laura's best friend the day she dies. And there's the real diary they found or the cover one and the tape for dr jacoby where she says donna doesn't know me and then donna says i knew her better than she thought i did but these two do not interact much in this diary it does not sound like they're friends much beyond the age of 13 well i think that the sense i got anyway was that because this is the secret diary that she can say her thoughts this is the way Laura really feels inside. So no, she's not close to Donna at all for many, many years. But I think that that doesn't change the fact that they could be hanging out every day and having lunch and 
talking about boys and whatever, that a lot of Laura's life was for show, that she learned how to manipulate people by being what they expected of her, whether that be a call girl or the homecoming queen. And I do feel like she probably acted a certain way at school that would make her popular. I mean, it's crazy to think that someone that has such a depraved upbringing is able to rise in the ranks of popularity, that she's so socially well-adjusted in her class and, and that people like her and don't know that she's going through all the things that she's going to go through. For some reason, I think that's the tale of every young actor and actress in Hollywood. But as far as the Donna thing goes, she does write about how she hasn't hung out with Donna and something about making her a special coat or something like that. And so they do have periods of estrangement there. And there's a little bit of other continuity, like early, early in the book, Laura's going to talk about her cousin Maddie, her identical cousin, also played by Cheryl Lee in the series coming for a camp out with her and Donna, and yet in the series, Donna doesn't know who Maddie is. They have to be introduced by James. No, that's true. I hadn't put that together, but yeah, there are those problems. I found a, a few of those. I don't feel like there's many of them, but the biggest one for me is the dates. The fact that the dates don't line up, that she's writing about times that happen after she dies is just infuriating to me. So a simple word processor choice you could just go through if you write in your book and take notes just go through and change every year back one i do in my head that is what i'm doing yes we're starting in 1983 in my mind but it is 84 and yeah i think that she you know like in, i had a journal for a while you write in it and then you do get bored you do stop writing in it you do realize that it's a practice a discipline and you know not everything a child undertakes is something that they decide they end up wanting to do and so she is very lax about when she wants to tell and when she doesn't and i think that's to our benefit because we probably wouldn't want to hear about every thought that she's had for five years the other thing is she doesn't write like a 12-year-old. And in fact, her writing style doesn't even seem to evolve. It's kind of hard to believe I'm reading stories about a 12 and 13-year-old girl when they're not written in short sentences and using simple words. The later entries have almost exactly the same writing style, verbiage, everything as the early ones. Yeah, I agree with that. And they feel like a 22-year-old trying to write as someone, a younger self. But I do feel like what Lynch tends to do, not always a bad thing. I mean, I think it's helpful, but I think she tends to elucidate things so much sometimes that you're like, okay, you're explaining it the way that a psychiatrist would. You're psychoanalyzing this person and you're giving them a lot more self-awareness of their pain and why they're doing the things they're doing than usually people do in the moment. I, it's hard for me to think that a 14, 15-year-old that is not getting enough sleep and doing a whole lot of cocaine could be so smart about why she does the things she does. I agree. And some of it works for me. You know, sometimes there's those wistful thoughts of that I think every teenager has. You know, the beginnings of existential crises that will plague us into death. But there's other times where it's like, okay, you're just almost writing a dossier on the character and it's mm -hmm. doesn't sound like it's coming from the character so much as the writer's room when they're saying things about how they shall write the character yeah and i think she did get some help from the writers i mean they were writing the new season when this would have been being 
piece together. I, I noticed, I had heard, and I, I looked up all the people that Laura slept with. She did include the initials of all the writers of the show, she, <laughs> including herself. Jennifer Lynch, uh, it's JCL in there. So she slept with Laura too. Anyone that writes about Laura in some way has uh, been with Laura. And those initials, by the way, there's a lot missing from there, too. Mm -hmm. yeah. I was looking at it, especially given that that's supposed to be a couple years before she died. But even people she's talked about sleeping with in the journal aren't listed there. Yeah, I, I agree. It has those kinds of missteps and the kinds of things they could have fixed in the reissue. Yeah. But they didn't. Wish they had. But I did count. And this is 1988. So in book logic, this would make her 15 years old. And at 15 years old, she had over 40 sexual partners mm. because she lists about 40 and then has also and several unseen unknowns from her orgies in the cabin. Yeah. I'm not saying that young people don't have these experiences. God knows there are situations and places in this world where children are exposed to sexuality at even younger ages. And then, of course, there's Katie Couric's famous blowjob parties in junior high. I don't know about that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, she did a big expose. Junior high kids were just getting together and having major oral orgies. Go, go. I don't know. Ask Katie. I didn't even watch the episode. Okay. Yeah, I think I'll <laughs> skip it. But I'm not a parent. I had my own history. I'm not going to say what's normal and not for people to be sexually active at 12 is not irregular. But the experiences that she does have and the idea that she's able to hold on to the illusion that she's doing well is a little hard to imagine. I also think that some of these relationships she has goes on much longer than I would have imagined watching the show. One of the things that gets brought up in the second season of the show is that she and Donna went off and met some boys and had a sexualized experience in the woods. That happens when she is 13 years old. I mean, that is really, really young into all of this. I would not have thought that they would have smoked pot and gone to the book house, which we finally learn what that is. It is a coffee house. <laughs> in a Jack Kerouac kind of theme. Yeah, I, we wondered about that when we saw what kind of place would that be. But yeah, I guess you just go for coffee. And the thing that gets me isn't that a 13-year-old would do this. The thing that gets me is that there's so many adults involved. Now, these three guys, when they're 13, take them out to the lake and sure that you could just say those are three guys they were probably in college young college guys 22 year old canadians doing something really stupid but again she goes to orgies at jacques cabin with tons and tons of people and nobody's like got an issue with this 14 15 year old girl now i did come up with the only approximation i could when I'm reading this, I also have read Tracy Lord's autobiography, and so I decided to map some dates. And because people believe Tracy Lord's was 18 when she was off doing porn, Tracy Lord's was 14 or 15 during her first nude modeling. She'd had an abortion at 14. She was raped at age 10 and started doing triple X porn at 16. Yeah, no, I I don't want to deny that people have these existences. By 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 challenging this novel. 
I am not trying to say it's impossible for this to have happened. No, no, I'm just trying to come up with, could people have believed she was older? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that that's what we're to understand about Laura, is that she's able to be what you want her to be, that she has that gift. She can figure out what other people want, and she can play to that, and then they never get to know her. They never have to know her, and she's protected. They can't hurt her because they don't really know her. I mean, she's someone that wants to keep people at bay, and the only person she has to confide in is this diary. And so that makes us a little bit, I guess I felt guilty. I mean, at, at one point she's talking about, you know, the fact that someone was reading her diary and the violation. She has a dream in which it appears everywhere and people are reading it. And I'm just like, oh, wow, I guess we're being indicted in this. Our exploitation, by turning her life into just some murder mystery and just, you know, reading for the dirty details of her book, I thought it was really clever the way that Jennifer Lynch kind of turned that back against us and challenged us to think that maybe we ought to think about... I mean, she's a fictional character, of course, so I don't feel that bad. But the point is, is that we should not exploit and objectify um, young women. But in the show, Donna has a moment where she is telling a character about this thing in the woods... And he reads this passage that basically Laura is saying, I like Donna, but she's just too immature to understand my dark thoughts of this black and dark, soaked with dreams of big, big men and different ways that they might hold me and take me into their control. When I heard that on the show, I thought that that was someone talking about sex and it might have been written, oh, within 12 months of that. She's 13. She's still a virgin if you don't take the molestation. I think it changes the context a lot to know that. That really, she's talking about big, big men. I think we have a tendency to think about, oh, she's talking about penis size or, you know, just being dominated. I just thought she meant Jacques. Yeah, exactly. Like, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. And that's one of the things I like about this book is that there are moments where characters said things about Laura and reading it in this context, it changes. You know, early in the show, James says to Donna, Bobby killed someone and that Laura told her that. And we're going to learn about that incident. And it's not as depraved, I guess as it was led to believe. I mean, when he said it on the show, I thought, well, maybe Bobby is the killer if he's killing people, but it ends up just being because Laura makes him deal drugs and they get into a a bad standoff. So I think that there are moments that are reevaluated. Things in the show that are never explained come to light in this book. Being written when it was. I mean, keep in mind, I think the first eight episodes of the series were so tight. And even though you talk about, you know, the story arc of ending with the reveal of and capture and death of Leland, it got looser starting with episode nine. So Mm -hmm. I think that here, a lot of the mysteries dangled in those first episodes are given more due because that's all there was. Mm -hmm. By the same token, I'm so glad that so many characters don't get more than a passing mention, you know? There's not too much about Big Ed and Nadine and a little bit with Norma and a real passing reference to things going on with her husband Hank, but 
really, this is going to focus on the people Laura would interact most with, which is going to be Bobby, Leo, Jacques, a little bit of Dr. Jacoby, some James, that kind of thing. Keep in mind, everyone in Twin Peaks was touched by Laura in some way, and that's why anyone could have been her killer early on. And then I think that, yeah, a week into the series, you're like, well... It's actually probably only one of nine people and that there's just no way it could be Johnny or what have you. But everyone has a Laura story. She was popular in that way. And I do think that it's interesting, the dominating theory towards the end, right before they reveal the killer is, all right, who's doing these attacks on her? Who killed her? Was it her father or was it her father's boss? Ben Horn. And they have this whole thing where the only case I can really see made for Ben Horn is that he seemed to have some kind of affinity for Laura that was not socially acceptable. He ended up buying her for her 12th birthday a horse and Leland took the credit for it. But it ended up coming out through a fight with Audrey that it was Ben. Yeah, that's right at the beginning of the diary. It starts with her getting that horse and I did wonder why Ben Horn would buy his lawyer's 12-year-old daughter a horse. That's, mm -hmm. a, you know, Ben is not going to be a great guy, but when all is said and done, he's also not a child molester. Right. Well, I think that you could make the case he did end up sleeping with Laura and she was underage, so technically... He is. Depends. You know, underage has different meanings now and in 1990. And in many states, the age of consent was 16. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That's a complicated issue. Uh, to me, it felt less boundary pushing. He did not sleep with her at 12 years old, whereas it appears that Leland did, or at least mm -hmm. the phantom that uh, Leland would become at certain points in time. But this horse becomes sort of a one of many metaphors in the book about innocence and innocence lost. She's trying to take care of this horse as things fall apart around her, and she ends up feeling like that she's just not good enough to have nice things, that she ends up setting this horse free, and it's found like eight months later with a broken leg and gets shot, and it's just sort of an omen about premature death and what will happen to Laura. Do you think this was a big white horse that Sarah Palmer had visions of when Maddie was killed? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, again, there are moments in the show that will make no sense unless you read this book. And that is definitely one of them. That in yeah, one of the pivotal episodes, there is a vision of a horse. And I have to believe that's Troy. So, I don't know. I It could have been, for sure. Also, Halloween 2, so who knows? Well, Halloween 2 was ripping off Twin Peaks. <laughs> But you said you knew when you read this book way back in 1990 when you closed the cover that it was her father. Yeah. And I'm reading this and I'm taking, for this review, just excruciatingly detailed notes and highlighting passage after passage. And here's what made me think Leland was the most likely suspect for the host of Bob. And that's that, first of all, it's happening to her very young. There are passages time and time again where she asks how could her parents not know about this mm -hmm. yes. is bob a friend of her parents is he are, are her parents turning a blind eye laura says at one point i'm either crazy or they're letting him come and take me this way and she it should be said it's not just that he comes in and violates her he comes through the window and takes her into the woods so at some point she is removed from her bedroom or at least 
an illusion is created that she is outside of where the attacks are taking place. It also becomes really interesting and confusing when Bobby Briggs starts coming through that same window. It's you you do realize she's not a reliable narrator that the drugs, the sleep deprivation, and yeah, maybe there's some mental health issue as well. There's a reason to not trust everything that she's saying. Yeah, so that stuff really does point to Leland, but all the stuff that's going on, all the drug running, and there's that moment in early season two where Dr. Jacoby is psychoanalyzing Bobby and talking about how Laura laughed when he cried at sex. That's all in here. And so much with Leo, so much with Jacques that when I finished reading, I didn't think it was definitive. There's so much illegality going on here and including all these people she doesn't even know. She is often blindfolded and taken to orgies and doesn't even know who's around and who's doing what to her. So I didn't think it necessarily ruled out anybody either. No, but it, Bob killed her. If you accept that the killer is Bob, and we yes. kind of know that very early. I mean, I feel like even in the second episode, uh, we really understand no matter who was the vessel, the culprit is this phantom Bob. We have to really be looking for who is Bob. Yeah, she's with a lot of criminals and killers and anybody at any point, I feel like her life could have ended in a lot of different ways. But since I know that Bob did it, I had to look at access. You know, she talks about, I feel like really early on, she has a bad dream where Bob is coming to her. He takes her cat and the cat ends up dead a few months later and he's singing Waltzing Matilda to her. She wakes up and her mother comes in and she's to comfort her singing Waltzing Matilda. So... Again, how much of that was a dream? How much is that a shared experience about people that are are living a life in denial? And access, you know, just the fact that Bob is able to come again and again and again to her window to always have access to her in the way that he does. She'll write a poem in which she talks about skipping and holding his hand. And it just sounds like she's talking about her father and you realize it's her molester. So I feel like the case is made pretty conclusively unless you the only thing i could say for the ben horn case is she mentions at a certain point that ben horn and her dad are spending a lot of time together and oftentimes it is like a friend of the family that takes advantage in these awful circumstances audrey is mad and jealous of laura because of what her father is doing or or expressing his feelings towards laura so I guess the case could be made that it could have been him. But as far as access, I mean, she even has a dream in which her father stands up in the middle of a breakfast table and rips off his clothes and accuses her of being a slut. I mean, that to me sounded a lot like the way Bob would speak to her. Once she starts doing sexually provocative things, Bob comes to her and says, you only know how to do them because I taught you that. And that really is like the mind screw of Bob is that he makes her feel like her burgeoning sexuality is his voice and that she can't have a sexual thought without feeling like it comes from being molested. And that is just so awful. It really is painful to read. The one line that I felt might have been a little bit much. I mean, she talks about walking in while her parents are having sex. And so there's other explanations for this. 
But when you read the line, I wonder if all penises look the way dad's does. That is, yeah. that is something. Again, these were red flags to me reading that book the first time that I just, I was not looking at any other suspects at this point. That it was very clear to me it was Leland. And I have to believe that in printing this book that they knew many people were going to do that. They were going to come to that conclusion. Again, though, this was a cash grab. This was a marketing tie-in. This was not intended as a way to necessarily give these clues so much as Twin Peaks was a phenomenon and they were going to capitalize on it every way they could from Alan Thicke TV specials to this book and this was what they could get out quickly. There's a lot more to come. There was so much in production that it kept coming out long after the series was ended. But it's so much better than that. That's what's so impressive about it is, yeah, it didn't have to be this good. It could have just been a laundry list of Laura meeting all the people in Twin Peaks and who could they be and, and creating inference. And what I really feel like she wrote was, yeah, like the bell jar or something. Like She wanted to write literature. It's very clear to me that Jennifer Lynch saw this as an opportunity to get a lot of young girls' angst out onto the page, that she wanted to deal with mental health issues, sexuality, frustration towards parents, and she wrote it in a way that does not feel like the show. It honors the show. In many cases, it ties into the show, but I feel like it goes into terrain that the show never would on ABC. I don't know what it will be like in Showtime. It feels more to me like the movie Firewalk With Me. Or Blue Velvet. Yeah, I agree with that completely. That said, the pacing of this is really off. It's a diary and written as such. There's no climax. I mean, Bob cameos in this. It's like Bob gets in her head and she starts writing Bob's words on the page. And so, much like Laura's life, as she gets older, the intrigue increases. Bob shows up in the diary more. She's doing more illegal things. For reasons I cannot explain, she's sleeping with Josie Packard. But she's not. That's all in her head. Oh, I think she is. I took it to be, oh, everyone sexualizes me. So towards the end, when she's all coked up and everything, even Josie wants me and everyone wants me. And it's just everyone wants to have sex with me and fuck me. That's the, her words. I, forgive my language. But <laughs> but yes, but she does talk about the sexual encounter she had with Josie. So unless she was on a lot more drugs than I suspect and having hallucination. Was there a sexual encounter? Yeah. Did I gloss over that? I feel like she mentions in passing that she knew Josie wanted her. I don't recall an act. October 10th, 1989. Dear Diary, I phoned Josie and told her I wouldn't be able to make the lesson that night until at least 10 o'clock. She said that was fine and she would be waiting for me. That night, I took advantage of the fact that someone wanted me so badly. And yet, I found myself as always instructing my partner on how to please me. This experience in particular left me feeling empty and angry and without respect for yet another person in town. P.S. On the way home from Josie's, I had a horrible vision of little Danielle running up to me to explain Bob. Not conclusive. I want to point out, I get what you're going at. And yeah, you could you could interpret that. But I also see that as someone who has, yeah, for years now has had dozens and dozens of sexual partners. So now every time that she's, you know, having an encounter, uh, maybe that's you know, what she's anticipating they really want. I mean, I think that's a 1989 entry. That's really, she's far gone at that point. So yeah, maybe she did sleep with Josie. Maybe she didn't. I think that's left up to your own 
personal taste and interpretation. I don't feel like anything in the show ever in- encouraged that. No, does the show ever say she was Josie was a Hong Kong prostitute? You know, we haven't gotten that far into the series. Josie will become more important in the next week and a half, and she's a kept woman in many ways. I feel like she is a prisoner of circumstance, and I will have to see. Join us at Now Peaking in a week, and I think we'll know a lot more about Josie, but she could have been. I'll leave it at that. It is said here, so if we don't find out otherwise, that's something else we'll, you'd find in this diary. And there's a lot of little tidbits like that. If you're really into the Twin Peaks universe, then this is going to give you more than the show ever could, both due to time and due to ABC standards and practices, into what their life is like. And it is little things like... Because she tutored Josie in English, she found out that she was a dancer and a prostitute in Hong Kong. Little bits that you could add to your own mental files on each of these characters. Yeah, and I like that about it. And yet, it's not so canon that it necessarily changes anything. If you didn't, if you wanted to ignore this book and watch the series, I feel like there would be nothing stopping you. It's just a different way of seeing Laura Palmer, a new way and a more human way of seeing Laura Palmer. I always thought the show was a lot of fun. I mean, it would have a few twisted moments where we're reflecting on the the absolute horror of the crime and the victim. But for the most part, it's a quirky, funny, compelling mystery show. But this book, it's just more about psychological abuse, maybe sexual abuse as well. It's less fun. But I do feel like it does change the way that we look at these characters. Yeah, why uh, Bobby killed someone. We The log lady. I mean, that could have just been a throwaway bit, but I actually felt like that was a really touching moment where she ended up getting a message from the log. Yeah, I wish there'd been a little bit more of that kind of stuff to a degree. You know, a little bit more of the supernatural element of Twin Peaks that I enjoy so much. They talk a lot about owls, and in many cases, you know, she has dreams where she wakes up hooting like an owl, or she's actually taken the diary to the woods, and owls are watching her as she writes. And we'll learn, if you follow the series long enough, that the owl is sort of the vampire bat version of Bob, that when Bob is not in his stringy-haired form, that he's flying around as an owl. Yeah, I still gotta wonder how much of it is Jennifer Lynch just like, the owls are not what they seem, so I'm gonna put owls all over the place, and that we're retroactively like, Bob's an owl, and look, owls! But oh, of course that's worked. what they did. I mean, we know that that's how they wrote this series, but, I mean, that's fair game. I take that to mean as Jennifer Lynch helped create the series, that we know that this informed uh, the character in a way that the writers in the writer's room hadn't considered. But you say this isn't canon enough that it's required reading and that's something that just comes down to fact is when you have a television series you have to know only a portion of your audience is going to read your book and if you have a movie franchise only a portion of your audience is going to read your comic spin-offs that kind of thing the longer the series went on and into the movie and possibly into the showtime series that's coming up the more things here don't quite stay so true. Like, early in season two, when Donna finds out about this diary, you mentioned the passage Harold reads her, that's straight from here, the story Donna's going to tell about the boys at the bookhouse, that's right here. But then, 
when Agent Cooper finds the diary, it's he's going to say there's things in here that aren't. And I'm really looking forward to our now playing review of Firewalk with me to see how that lines up. Because my memory of that is fuzzy, but feverish. And I don't know that a lot of it's going to work out the way it shows here. Oh, yeah. I don't think that this is going to have continuity. There are continuity problems. I mean, on the show, we were told that Laura only appeared at One-Eyed Jacks for, sounded like a weekend, but that like she kind of just showed up and Ben Horn didn't know anything about it and it, she was thrown out because she was too screwed up on drugs. Here, she was like two years and she has a sexual relationship with Blackie. Was it that long? I didn't get that it was that long here. Yeah, it was that long. Two years of that. And that's what I mean about just like, I thought a lot of what Laura was going through was stuff that came up for her within the last six months of her life. I did not imagine that she had known Leo and Ronette and even been dating Bobby for three or four years. That to me felt like a stretch. I agree. She gets with Bobby way too early. I mean, she's in high school. Those relationships do not last years even if you do get your boyfriend to start dealing drugs for you and things but i mean it was a dysfunctional relationship they were cheating on each other yada 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 mm -hmm. but the fact that yeah she took his virginity when they were both so young and he she humiliated him and degraded him and he still stuck around for years it felt like there were certain things paced in a way that would make sense for a book that you want these beats to happen this often so you have this much interesting stuff to sprinkle throughout by the same token. Yeah, it feels like things just didn't happen when they should have for a logical reason. If she was that big a part of Bobby's life for years, whether or not he loved her, I think he'd be a little bit more broken up about it than he appears on the show. Mm -hmm, for sure. And I do feel like they missed an opportunity to to show a new dimension to Shelley, that she knows that Bobby is having an affair with Leo's wife, and Leo doesn't even know that. And yet, we don't really see anything in these pages. I would have liked to have seen Shelley on cocaine and still in high school, and before she became sort of the sweet waitress that she is throughout the series. I don't feel like she's ever, I could be wrong, we're not done with the series, but I don't feel like she would have been with a bad boy like Leo, uh, given the life that she was leading at that time. Uh, she would have to have been a different person to be with him, and it would have been nice to have seen that opportunity. That was a missed opportunity, I think, in these pages, to see why Shelley and Bobby would have hooked up, and why Bobby would have ultimately picked Shelley over a crazy girl like Laura. You know, it's said Laura gets tired of wanting to be what Bobby wants her to be, that Bobby likes the idea that she could turn it on and go back to being the sweet 16 teenager. And she just, the more that she goes through life, the more she resents those expectations. I mean, she wants to be bad. I mean, she has several passages where she talks about how, you know, it's her idea to pose for Flesh World. It's her idea to do most of the things uh, that gets her in trouble towards the end of her life. I mean, she's the one that is wanting to rebel against the image of being a virginal, pure homecoming queen. Yeah, exactly. And the Shelley thing, again, I think it just comes down to the writers and Major and Amik had one view and it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense how she got herself in that situation. As for the rest of it, 
I feel like also I would have liked to have seen more of James in this diary, but James is a late comer. You know, she only, I guess, recently started cheating on Bobby with James. It was a new affair. And last page of this book, hey, th things are getting too close. I got to give you to Harold now. So we're done. <laughs> yeah, they towards the last year of her life, not only is Bob writing in the journal, which is probably just a version of herself that she has internalized the abuse so much that she can speak in her abuser's voice. Or Bob is starting to possess her. I'm not ruling that out. True, true. Yeah, if you want to go the supernatural realm, if you like the idea that Bob is a phantom, then yeah, he is getting closer and closer to, to having her mind, body and soul. You know, I like the idea that there were pages that were so incriminating, Bob had to rip them out. But the fact is, they have those pages. Cooper will get those pages. They recover those pages. So we could actually read what it was. And if his name is not used, I mean, wouldn't that have been a reason to arrest him if, if those pages actually said, I know who Bob is and it's my dad? And according to Jennifer Lynch, these pages missing... Only a couple were taken out because editorial and the showrunners, Mark Frost, are like, oh, this is too obvious. So a couple of the missing pages were actually Jennifer Lynch wrote stuff. Oh. And it was removed. Oh, that's interesting. But by and large, it was intentionally she just wrote page ripped out. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I can understand why. I mean, I feel like then they should have ripped out a few other ones, like Leland tearing off his clothes and yelling at her. But <laughs> I don't know that they wanted to necessarily hide it. I mean, it, it wouldn't come much further after the diary is introduced into the show that the killer is revealed. I think it's five days from learning about this secret diary to knowing who killed Laura Palmer. And so, yeah, that people had a five, six week head start on all of this. I think that that's sort of the gift of it and something that can't unfortunately be recreated. Most people I suspect that will come to this book now will have already have watched the series and know who killed Laura Palmer. But when I read it, I did not know. And it told me. I think knowing enhanced this reading of it. When I read it the first time, I think I was just so furiously looking for obviousness as to who did it that I missed the subtleties. This time, going through and looking for the clues and looking for the red herrings and all of that, I don't think knowing who killed Laura Palmer ruins the enjoyment of this book at all. I think loving Twin Peaks and wanting to delve deeper in that world, this does it successfully. I have read, both for Books and Nachos, for Now Playing, and for my own enjoyment, a shit ton of tie-in fiction, and this is among the best. Yeah, I want to side that. I'm going to make a bold statement, and one that I'm not certain about because I haven't revisited it. This is what Fire Walk With Me should have been and failed to be. It humanizes a character that was trivialized by the series and makes you feel emotionally for her which I don't think ever happened in the show. We felt for her lookalike cousin Maddie. We felt for her mother and her father. I don't know that we ever knew enough about Laura to feel for her during the show. But reading this diary, it's impossible not to have empathy with what this 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 17-year-old girl is going to go through. And I think it's a credit to everyone involved that while they were, yeah, rushing out another product to put out there like a t-shirt or a coffee mug that this has staying power the fact that it got republished years later to me indicates that this is not just some cash grab this was a fine moment in the entire series one of the highlights of the twin peaks saga is this book i see this book as additive 
I don't think this book stands alone at all. I don't think you could read this book and then go, hey, I think I want to watch that TV series that this is based on. But I think it is a very nice addition. But I, I don't know. I don't think anything lives up to the series itself. And I'm really looking forward to, not all that long from now, reviewing Firewalk With Me over at NowPlayingPodcast.com because my memory is actually that I like its vibe better. Better than this book or better than the series? Better than this book. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, I was like, whoa, that is a super controversial statement. I don't think I like the movie much, but when it comes to telling of the life and death of Laura Palmer, I thought I just... I liked David Lynch's style better than Jennifer Lynch's and the fact that David Lynch was able to make it visual and engrossing and depict it. Whereas Jennifer Lynch, by the restriction she was given, you are writing a diary. She right there didn't have the ability to make it quite as fun. But we will be talking about this diary a lot, I have a feeling, when we do get to that review, which will be available for free for everyone at nowplayingpodcast.com. And right now, if you head to nowpeakingpodcast.com, for free for everyone, you can hear an over two-hour discussion of the Twin Peaks pilot movie. We discussed that with Jacob in Now Playing Format. And its European ending, it was released as a standalone movie, and we kind of reviewed it as such. And if you really want to go deeper, you can hear reviews of every episode of Twin Peaks for a donation to our show of either $0.99 cents an episode or $29.99 gets you a 12-month season pass. We're going to hear reviews of every Twin Peaks episode, including all of the ones coming up this summer on Showtime. All the details are at nowpeakingpodcast.com. And not only that, but we will be covering here at Books and Nachos several more tie-ins uh, starting tomorrow. I mean, the show is on a little bit of a hiatus. We have been trying to release an episode of Now Peaking for every day of the series, but they took three days off in between the revelation and wrap-up of The Killer and where the series would go. So on Wednesday, we'll have a new Now Peaking episode, but tomorrow, we're going to look at another tie-in. And Diane, it's all about you. Yes, the Agent Cooper tapes came out on audio cassette. We're going to give all the details about that tomorrow. But in the meantime, if you want to hear more book reviews, if this is your first episode of Books and Nachos, head to booksandnachos.com. Individually and together, there are a lot of reviews from Stuart I, Jacob, about various novels that are usually related to multimedia in some way. Graphic novels, Batman the Dark Knight in year one, Stuart's been doing Frank Herbert's Dune novels, I did some in-depth Stephen King reviews, you can find them all at booksandnachos.com. Thank you for listening, Stuart, thank you for joining me for this book review, and until next time, please remember to support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. Now that you've heard this review, head to nowpeaking.com to hear Arnie, Stewart, and Jacob review every episode of the Twin Peaks TV series. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com slash support. Music is by Angelo Badalamenti. Music arranged by Aaron Lepley. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the well-known TV program Twin Peaks. Books and Nachos is an independent television review podcast with no affiliation with Twin Peaks Productions Incorporated or any other company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that show. All audio and music used in this show are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. The opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Books and Nachos is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved, and no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Frickin' audiobook of this read by not Sarah Lee. Uh, <laughs> well, that'd be delicious. It'd come with a cherry pie slice. <laughs> That's Shirley. Shirley. <laughs>